Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to the Human Animal Connection Show, where we believe we can communicate with all animals. Join us as we explore the 33 principles and healing methods of the human animal connection. As animal lovers, we know that you share our commitment to making the world a kinder place for all creatures. Together, let's embrace the transformative healing power of the human animal connection. Hi, welcome to the Human Animal Connection Show. I'm your host, Michael Overly, and I am here again with the amazing Jeannie Joseph. Jeannie. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Michael. It's good to be here. In today's episode 1112, we're talking about relationship training. And we really believe in the human animal connection that this is the missing ingredient. This is the secret to better behavior. And in the old days, there was a huge emphasis on obedience training. And in particular, going back, you know, many years, it's still current, but the dominance model, which said that humans need to be the boss of the dog and dominate the dog and use fear and coercion to get the dog to obey. And that was you know, the thinking for a long period of time. Um, but fortunately, there's new science that shows that there's a better way. So that's what we're talking about today. I'm excited because I, when I had my first dog, that was the model, right? When I was a kid. And even up until recently, guess what? It's still the model. Yeah. And there's all this talk about alpha. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, it's so misconstrued oof. because people don't understand what an alpha wolf an alpha male actually is, but there's there's uh, there's hope. There is, there is. Well, it's really exciting, especially if we look at the trends in military working dogs, because of course they started with the, that model, that being the current model of dominance, and it sort of fit the archetype of arc, the hierarchy in the military. But they discovered that positive training methods, where the dog is rewarded for doing what you want, and you basically ignore what you don't want, that that model, the positive training model, or 90% positive training, is 300 times more effective than the dominance model. So the military military working dogs, and they have to be anywhere from 98 to 100% accurate. There's like no room for error because these are, you know, the bomb detection dogs that save thousands of lives every year. They are the, you know, true heroes. Um, they discovered that positive training, A, was faster for the dog to learn, but more importantly, from a military point of view, better retention so that you know, unfortunately, they they rotate their trainers so that the next trainer coming in was going to be um, picking up at a at a much higher level of retention than the fear based methods, which were based upon the dog being afraid of an individual. So um, they have discovered that, the, of course, all of us on the positive side of life have been knowing this that dominance is not not really. Uh, an effective way to learn because it breaks the bond and it introduces fear and fear is actually the opposite of, of effective learning. So dominance methods can create initial obedience, but the price for that is that the dog has um, fear and the fear reduces the bond, which reduces the spiritual impact of having a wonderful relationship with the dog. What is the main difference, right? What is for you, what is the biggest differentiator between the relationship model versus the the obedience? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So the obedience model, which was often based upon, like you said, 
this false idea of, of the needing to dominate the dog is really based upon getting just an outcome, a desired result without taking into account how the dog feels, what the dog's opinion is, how the, what the dog's connection is to you. And relationship training, which is our method in the human-animal connection, we put the relationship first. And if the dog feels safe and if the dog trusts you, the dog wants to please you. So we want to, we work, if we see that the behavior isn't what we want, we take a look and see where's the communication breakdown. Where is the dog not understanding you? Where is the dog confused? Where, where are you confusing the dog with perhaps a mixed signal, maybe too many? We work with one client and she just had too many arm motions and it, the dog thought, oh, that means play. And so the dog was jumping and nipping and doing all these things because the dog saw this behavior as invitations to play because it's it looks playful to a dog, right? And it was just her normal way of, of being, you know, but she was not aware that she was giving the dog false signals. Of course, I was showing on, I forget, not everyone's on video, but I was waving my arms, <laughs> you know, like people talking to wave their arms and lots of people do that. But uh, for a dog, that that has to be understood and interpreted. And uh, in this case, the dog was thinking, oh, this means she's a toy and I want to play. So she, the dog was responding in from the dog's point of view of what made sense to the dog. And so when we're looking at relationship training, we put the first goal is not obedience, the first goal is good communication between the person and the animal. And when good communication is there, trust emerges. And when trust emerges, the bond is very strengthened. And when the bond is strong, the animal, you know, most animals, many animals, you know, domesticated animals want to please us, domesticated animals that are sharing lives, you know, because we are, they're dependent on us for food and shelter and water and all this good stuff. So, you know, if the bond is good, the animal wants to do what we want. And that means that we humans need to be good communicators. And that includes everything from being aware of our tone of voice, our facial expression, our energy, our mood, our timing, our distance, because all of those elements are communication elements to a dog. So you'll see your dog using distance, for example, to um, regulate what they feel comfortable with, with other beings, with you, with the house, with whatever's going on. They're constantly using distance. So as humans, we need to understand that and not inadvertently violate a safety boundary by just getting too close, by moving too fast, by moving in a straight line towards them or any number of things which are just happen normally in daily life. But if we're observing then we're aware of how is that affecting the dog. And if the dog is busy trying to decode all this random information, they don't have enough brain space left to SIT. I'm spelling it because my dog, well, my dog can actually spell that word. <laughs> yeah. So this is relationship training model is based on putting the relationship first and the, the goal of obedience second. Here comes Bailey. Yeah. Hi, Bailey. <laughs> so yeah so that is is our main difference and um can i tell you a story about one of our clients yeah absolutely yeah okay so this was in she called me in for a consultation to do an animal communication session and she is a wonderful person good-hearted person she's a very clean person very neat her house like you could eat off of any surface the floor included right so she's just a very neat person and she had um, two rescue greyhounds and a pot-belly pig and pot-belly pigs um, uh, unlike popular notions they're pretty clean they they really can learn their name they learn where to potty they can do all kinds of great things so they're pretty clean. So she had um, these two greyhounds were very bonded. They were rescue greyhounds from the track and one of them passed away and the one remaining 
was very, very sad. So sad that she thought he was going to pass too. You know, he was just acting listless, took him to the vet, nothing wrong. It was emotional. The dog was grieving the loss of the mate and uh, the housemate. And so she got another dog, another greyhound. And um, things were okay between the two dogs, but the new dog, whose name was Bree, would she take him out for potty, take her out for potty before she go to work, bring the dog in, and the dog would immediately potty on her rug. And, you know, this was after being just taken in. And it was to the point where she was thinking she couldn't keep this dog anymore. She was going to have to rehome him because it was making her late for work and just creating all kinds of chaos in her life. And because she was such a neat person, this was really confusing. And so she brought me in and said, can you talk to my dog? And I said, yes, <laughs> I can talk to your dog. So we began a little communication session with this dog that was doing these things. And I said, so tell me, what's up? You know, what's going on? You know, not saying, how can I stop you from peeing on the rug? That's not how I communicate. I want to ask the dog and say, tell me what's going on. And the dog said, there's no room in her heart for me, the new dog. And I told this to the person because she was still, she had gotten a new dog right away. She was still, she was still grieving. She felt guilty for replacing the dog. You know, so she, it was true. She burst into tears. She realized that it was absolutely the truth. And I said, all Brie wants is to know that there's room for her in your heart, in your house, and in your life. And she got it. And she really apologized to the dog for, for, you know, having her heart so shut down. And that was it. 18 months later, and the problem has been fixed. You know, the dog never peed in the house again, because the dog didn't feel like she had a place. And so, you know, that is what relationship training is all about is instead of assuming that I can fix a behavior as my goal, which is, you know, a lot of people go to a trainer and say, fix this. My dog is broken. Fix this. And our approach is to say, okay, yeah, we understand that you don't like this behavior, but what's going on in the relationship that might be triggering this? Is the dog frightened? Is the dog insecure? Is the dog angry? Is the dog frustrated? What's happening for the dog that's causing this behavior that you don't like? And so that's, our approach on the human-animal connection, if we see a behavior problem, our first approach is not going to be the obedience model of trying to fix or force a dog to comply. It's going to be talking to the dog and finding out what is it that the dog needs. That's fantastic. I mean, that's how does this apply in other ways, in other areas, in other relationships in our lives? Yeah. Right? We, we don't know what's going on, and people's communication styles are different. Right. We obviously, most of us don't know how to read dog. We don't know how to speak dog. Right. And they, they don't know how to communicate with us. So there's always something underneath a behavior, right? It really is, you know. And um, so what we like to look at, what we teach people is to really understand, you know, positive behavior, the method, the basic concept of positive behavior is reward what you like. So if the dog's something you, you like, you know, if you ask a dog to SIT and the dog does that, they get a reward immediately. If you ask the dog to look at you or what the word we use is focus to give you eye contact, they do that. They get a treat immediately in the training stage. Then you begin to back off the treats once they learn it. But in the training stage, we're using treats a lot, meaning we're, we're rewarding the behavior that we like. And what this does is it allows the dog to make the right choice. What we want to do is teach the dog what is the right choice so that they can then choose to make the right choice. And that's the opposite of 
forcing the dog to do something because they're afraid of us. They're afraid that we'll be mad or you, you know, or use a punishing technique or a correction, a harsh correction. So it's not to say that there isn't a place sometimes in an emergency for a harsh correction. If a dog's going to run out in traffic, you're going to, you may have to use a harsh correction, you know, but I'm not saying that it's never possible. But what we want to do, especially in the training stage, is use positive training methods unless it's a life and death situation. So one of the things that we teach people is that what the dog considers to be a reward might be different from what you think. So for example, many dogs are very rewarded by food. So food is a very reliable method in the training stage of teaching a dog what it is that you want. But some dogs are not treat motivated. Some dogs are motivated by um by affection, by a tone of voice, by a smile, by a pet. Uh, and in the military, these are dogs that are very motivated by playing with a toy. So, for example, they go find a, bo a bomb, save thousands of lives, and their reward is they get to play with a rubber Kong that they love. And they get to play for a few minutes or till they're tired of it. And then the toy is taken away and comes out again when they do the next right thing. And they are completely satisfied by that. Do you know what I mean? Like, because that, that person in a military situation does not necessarily have accessible treats in the field, you know, um, so they can't stop and take a, uh, you know, get a treat out, whatever. So, what you know, these dogs are, are very motivated by playing with a toy. So, the moral of the story is maybe your dog wants to play with a favorite toy for a moment or a game of tug for a, a minute or two. Who knows what your dog feels most rewarded by? And many dogs have multiple rewards. So, they like the treat and they like the pet and they like the look and they like the pet, you know, the, all the different things. So, but you'll find that probably your dog has one, like my dog, Sophia, number one is treat. You know, she loves it when I talk to her sweetly and pet her. She loves all that too. But number one in the learning stage is going to be a treat and not just any old treat, not just a piece of kibble, but something that's really what we call a high value treat, meaning it, it, it really smells good. It's very stinky to us and very delicious to them. <laughs> so that's no. important is for people to really pay attention and see of all the things your dog likes, what does your dog like the most? And it's very good to understand all the different ones. So for example, if I'm, uh, Sophia is my service dog also, so she's allowed to go with me to a store. And there are some situations where I'm not necessarily going to want to give her a food treat. So I need to know what's her number two reward. What's her number three reward. So those might be, you know, the eye contact, my tone of voice, Sophia, my sweetie pie, you know, like my little baby voice is going to be rewarding for her. So, and it's good to have dogs have more than one reward because that gives you more flexibility in different situations. But what's important is that you understand your dog's reward strategy. And maybe it is two things. Maybe a treat isn't enough, but you know, this is what we want to find out. Uh -huh. Well, that's a great point. So with Indigo, initially, she was not food motivated. Right. So yeah. the treats, they didn't, she's like, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah. it didn't work at all. And it was, it was the, uh, you know, the, the, the praising, the good girl and the yeah. gentle touch. Yeah. And then later, after she calmed down, she got her nervous system kind of back online and back in order. Then she became really food motivated. So then it right? switched. Yes, it can. Food was the primary. Yes. And the, the, the praising and contact was secondary. Yes. And we see that too. We see that with the dogs in the therapy dogs in our training program. Sometimes they come in, they're not particularly food motivated, but as they get their nervous systems regulated and relaxed, they do become more food motivated. They're still going to like the other things too. You too. 
<laughs> are you food motivated? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we humans, yes. So yeah, well, you know, that's why we can understand it is because food is comfort, food is life. And, and you know, in, in the right amounts of moderation, it's, it's a good thing. So again, with treats, we, we don't want to overdo it. But in the learning stage, they are our best friend, especially if the dog is treat motivated. But it is a matter of understanding what your dog feels is rewarding. Love that. Love that. Let, let's touch base on that back when we come back. But I think now is a good time to take a break. Great. Hey, friends. If you like what you're hearing and want to learn more, check out Dr. Joseph's book, The Human-Animal Connection, Deepening Relationships with Animals and Ourselves. Or visit the website, thehumananimalconnection.org, to book an online consultation. Thank you for loving animals. Now back to the show. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. All right, folks, welcome back to Human Animal Connection. Jeannie, we're having so much fun with this, and I'm learning so much more about why I behave the way I do. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get you well trained by the time this podcast is over. <laughs> That's what Indigo told me the other day. So, yeah. <laughs> um, hey, I, I want to step back a little bit when we we're talking about the dominant style training. And so, w- like, if we do this the wrong way and we just we come in with this, you know, mm, me mighty human type of behavior, what are the costs? of that um, associated with how the animal is going to behave and then also how it's going to make a difference in our life. Absolutely. Great, great question. Thank you for that. So on, on the most basic level between you and your dog, the cost of dominance methods, even though they might create initial obedience, are that the dog is, their nervous system becomes dysregulated. In other words, they become fear, if there's fear running through the system. And when there's fear running through the system, they're not going to make the best choices and it's going to cost you in terms of your bond. So on a personal level between you and your dog, it breaks the delicate, beautiful, trusting bond that we all, the reason I think, well, it's why I have a dog because of the love the, and the potential for a deep spiritual connection. And if I'm going to use fear, I'm going to erode that over time. So dogs that are frightened are going to ultimately show bad behaviors in other areas. Like it'll spill out in another area, like, you know, children of alcohol you know, with active alcoholic parents will often act out in a different way later, you know what I mean? Like it'll show up later. So it's the same thing with the animal. So on a personal level, the cost is of using fear, even though it will create, it can create a submissive dog, which then can turn into an aggressive dog. So that dog may aggress upon other dogs or upon other beings, you know, birds or other things. So the, on a personal level, it the cost it, of using fear is the breaking the bond. On a cultural level, when we think that we are superior to animals, that we need to dominate them, then we mistreat them. We don't mind putting them through terrible laboratory experiments because they're just things, not not beings with feelings and thoughts and emotions and opinions. And so on, on a cultural level, it has a huge price tag in terms of either just, you know, mowing down their habitat, like with the orangutans, you know, well, you know, we want this land, so who cares what happens to the orangutans and, you know, things like that, you know, that kind of uh, disregard for species and, you know, overhunting and all that kind of stuff that goes on when we have the opinion that humans are superior beings, you know, that on the hierarchy of life that because our we can think that we're superior or something along those lines. So the price goes all the way down from the most individual intimacy 
aspect with your the dog that shares your home to the the dogs that share or the animals that share a planet and so the disregard for for the relationship between us and animals causes all kinds of harm yeah just a basic level of respect right um, i remember i was working with indigo one day and we were just you know 100 yards from the house but i was working with her in the street i was getting all frustrated and i and i just i, I stopped and I, I got this hit from her and she just said, you're not respecting me at all. Oh. And I was like, it was like a gut punch, right? I was like, yeah. And she was right. I was, I was being that, mm, I've, I work many dogs, me mighty human crept right. back in there. And, yeah. um, you know, because she's, she's this Belgian shepherd. She's this, you know, military style dog. And I thought I needed to be a little, maybe a little Tougher. more. And I needed to do exactly the opposite. And she yes. told me that. Wow. Well, oh, that's yeah. beautiful. Well, not only is it beautiful that she told you, but twice as beautiful that you listened. <laughs> mm -hmm. And three times as beautiful that you were willing to change your behavior to recognize yeah. that communication. So, yeah, oftentimes when I'm doing animal communication sessions, they tell me that the human is doing something that really isn't kind, you know, and the human isn't deliberately being unkind, but not recognizing that behavior um, on the human side is is having a huge impact on on the dogs, the dogs or the animals experience. And, you know, there's a range what I find the same thing in humans, there, there are humans that are, we see this like three children in a family and one one child is like, you know, whatever you say, ah, whatever, you know, it just rolls off their back, you know, they can take uh, uh, emotional, physical, verbal abuse, pretty heartily you know they have a lot of grit they have a lot of they just have a tougher skin and the middle child is about average and the third child is very very sensitive that if you even give a, a look that's like you know says you're doing bad they crumble they 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 get weaker and i remember when i was training for the military uh i remember this one guy telling me he was air force guy i forgot his rank i'm sorry but i won't say who it is but anyway he said he when he would train men all he had to do was call them a the P word, and they would just comply, right? You know, they would you just had to say, oh, you're a bunch of, you know, and then they would just all snap into line. When he started training the women, this was going back 30 years, right? He started training the women and he used that same methodology. Their scores would weaken. They would actually become less effective at their job. The more aggressive and angry and critical he was, the more they, um, you know, reduce their effectiveness as a team. I mean, so since they're scoring everything, they can see, okay, this, this, human behavior results in this byproduct. So they were really seeing he, and thank for, thankfully he understood that. He realized that when he was training the men, because he had two groups, men and women separated, he had a, you know, he could use the same old strategy and it always worked, you know. They just had been raised in that tradition. They were used to it. It was rolling off their back to a degree, you know, that, that it was just like, they just assumed that that's the way he talks and that's what they need to do. And they understood the clarity of that. They appreciated it actually, <laughs> the black and whiteness of it. The women did not. They felt undervalued. They felt disrespected. They felt hurt that, you know, all the things, right? And so this is the same thing in dogs. There are some dogs that you can, well, let's put it this way. They don't crumble with some of these harsher methods. Another dog, like with Sophia, if, you know, like when I'm in a training class, sometimes with other, and you can see it, and that's why it's really good to be in a training class with dog, other dogs, is you get to see your dog's sensitivity levels compared to maybe some other dogs, right? So, and it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a difference in temperament. There are some dogs that are just innately more sensitive and they cannot take harsh corrections. And when I say harsh corrections, I mean, even a look, a tone of voice, you know, even just avoiding them, you know, just turning away from them, that's too much. So Sophia, when she's learning new things, like uh, we were in a, a scent dog class and she was the only little dog 
in you know scent dog classes are usually for the dogs with you know the long noses they're really in other words there's some dogs in the class she had the best behavior like she was the most attentive and the most focused and she could learn the fastest but if she didn't get success with finding the scent she would give up she would just give up <laughs> And these other dogs will be like, okay, I'll keep looking, 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 I'll keep looking. Okay, there it is. And Sophia's like, I'll keep looking, I'll keep looking. It's not there. I quit. You know, and this is like, instead of saying bad dog, you know, about Sophia, which I wouldn't say, but, you know, I, I, it was tempting because I would watch these other dogs just be, have this ruthless work ethic, you know, about finding the scent, finding the treat. And she would give up and I would just have to recognize, you know what, this isn't her favorite game. You know, she likes games where she can win right away, you know, with a minimal amount of effort. She'll do some effort, but beyond that, if she doesn't feel like she's succeeding, she'd rather do something else. She'd rather just sit and look cute. <laughs> and rather than be upset about that, I said, okay, they asked me, I said, would you like to go on to level two scent work? And I said, you know, I don't think so. I don't think it's her favorite thing. So I'm glad that we did the work. It was fun, but it's not her thing. And, uh, you know, Bailey, for example, if we put him in a scent class, he'd probably be the star of the show. You know, he just is, he will go until he, nothing's going to stop him. I mean, the world could, you know, you know, nuclear bombs would go off and he's going to find that scent. So um, it's just understanding that individual people, individual animals have different temperaments. And that that means that instead of having one strategy, one training strategy, we have to have many training strategies because different animals are going to respond differently to different techniques. So, for example, when I was learning to be a dog trainer, I was trained with someone who was 101% positive. Never, no, nothing around the dog's neck, no tension around the neck, no pulling, no, you know, nothing that was in any way negative. And she was, uh, she had, uh, I, I forget, it was, uh, anyway, it was a sensitive dogs. Okay, so they couldn't handle any kind of correction. And I was raised with that, and I thought that was true. And then I met some other dogs that really just weren't that kind of sensitive and needed some more corrective methods. So they needed, you know, very slight leash corrections or some other methods or a little bit more of a stronger hand, you might say. I would never do anything painful or, you know, dominant, nothing like that. But I did recognize that there's a range. And so now I, I you know, I say I'm 95% positive, meaning that in most, that's going to be my go-to. But if that doesn't work, I recognize that 5% of dogs need something a little bit stronger to understand what it is that I want. But still, my goal is always going to be about how can I communicate in the clearest way as possible what my desire is not give mixed messages and it was interesting when i was in my dog training program we had to spend two days two eight-hour days learning to train chickens and the reason is that chickens have very fast responses they learn instantly like within three times they know exactly what you want if you if you are precise in in your thing so with the chicken training literally you wore the treat here and you would go I, I know you can't see this if you're just listening, but I'm taking my hand and I'm just making a straight line from the treat to the chicken, from the treat to the chicken without, any, I, if I vary two inches off to the side, that's a different message to the chicken. If I, you know, just go two inches to the left or two inches to the right, the chickens think that means something different because that's how smart they are. It is, people really underestimate chickens, but it, it's, you can train them to do all, you know, 
go up and down stairs and do things and come to name. I mean, it's amazing what you can teach a chicken. So this taught us to be absolutely precise. We couldn't move our eyes left or right because, again, the chicken would have to decode that. So it was about absolute precision of motion and stillness and no extraneous motion of, of the, the chin, the head, the eyes, anything, so that the chicken knew exactly what it is you were asking them to do. And within three tries, they could learn, okay, this is what happens. You know, they, they, they had to touch a, a color, like a little like a re- little round plastic thing, a red one, a blue one, or yellow. And they learned, okay, if I do this, you know, if I touch the red one, I get this treat. And if I do that, I get, the, you know, whatever. They would learn it within three tries. I mean, within a minute, you would teach a chicken you'd never met. We'd never, you know, these weren't like our pet chickens. These, they came to the training just for the first time. So this is, I forgot the point I was trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> but I know there was a reason for telling you the chicken story, but I guess it was about the precision of how, you know, as humans, we don't realize, you know, our, our communication styles are like really bizarre. You know, we, we're using our, our voice in all different ways, our hands in all different ways, our body in all different ways. We've got emotions. We've got mixed emotions. We're, we're happy, but we're in a hurry or we're stressed, but we're this, we love, but we're hate. You know, it, we got so much going on in any given sentence. Like if I say, I love you, you know, the words say, I love you, but the t- did the tone of voice, did you feel loved when I said that? <laughs> no, you sounded annoyed. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, you're good because you, you've been trained well, but, you know, a lot of men would say, oh, she loves me. Everything's fine. I can, you know, keep doing this behavior, right? So, uh, it can become very challenging, you know, human-to-human communication, but we also have to realize that with dogs, they, they're picking up on all this data, you know, and it's confusing, and when they get confused, they shut down, and so then communication stops. And this is one why we call it relationship training, because we're teaching the human how to communicate in a way that's really best for the dog. So, that was a little bit about our story about relationship training, which in the human-animal connection, we think is the secret to better behavior by focusing on the quality of the relationship rather than the result, a goal of a specific behavior. So, in the next uh, episode, we're going to be talking about honoring the wisdom of animals. So, I hope you'll join us for that one. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Animal Connection Show. Please visit our website, thehumananimalconnection.org. There, you can sign up for our free email newsletter, book a consultation, or check out our blogs and resources. Our best-selling book, The Human-Animal Connection, is available on Amazon. And your donation of any amount keeps our nonprofit organization providing life-changing services. You can reach Michael Overly, author of Let Your Dog Lead, musings on how to create an exceptional life, on his website at dogsandmen.com or email michael at dogsandmen.com. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.